it's your boy, and welcome to episode 70 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it, send them your favorite episode. My throat uh, feels a little tired, honestly. I just woke up from a nap about 30 minutes ago, um, which I never do. Uh, I never take a nap, or I should say I rarely do. Uh, Sometimes in the winter, when your boy gets a little uh, seasonal affective, depressed, or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes I do feel the need to take a nap every once in a while, but uh, it's exceptionally rare. But I did. I was uh, sitting on the sofa reading The Shining, which I just started reading yesterday, actually, and... Uh, I was, like, in the middle of a chapter, and, like, out of a movie, my eyes just kept getting heavier and heavier and kind of closing on themselves, and I had to, like, shake my head to stay awake, and by the time I got to the end of the chapter, I said, man, you just got to lay down for a little bit. So I did that. Um, I do this thing, uh, when I, you know, I use my phone all the time to set alarms and set timers, and it's uh, it's just a tool I use throughout the day. Actually, I was looking through my alarms recently because I had to turn one off that was upcoming. I probably have an hour, because I set alarms so frequently, I have an hour sort of logged, cached in my system of alarms for like every 15 minutes for a 24-hour cycle because I've just, I've set so many alarms that I just, I don't know, they've cached, you know, I have an alarm for every 15 minutes if I wanted to. Um, I'm also one of these speech, or how do I say it, speech-to-text people with my iPhone, uh, when, you know, when I when I when I text people, I'll speak into my phone, and of course, I have to spend half my time correcting whatever Siri thought I said. Um, but it means when I set a timer, when I set an alarm, you know, Siri responds to confirm it. And I don't know what the fuck's going on because I I don't update my operating system ever. I'm in this perpetual cycle with my computer, even where it says, "Oh, it's time to upgrade." And I don't. I say, oh, remind me tomorrow. And every single day, I defer to the next day to remind me about upgrading the operating system. Uh, and same thing with my phone. Your phone just sort of locks into the screen where it's like, all right, hey, when are we going to upgrade? And it's like you have to sneakily press the button at the bottom that says skip this process because otherwise they, you know, they want to make you feel like you have to. And if they had their, because if they had their druthers, Apple would just keep you up to date all the time. I prefer not to. Uh, not for any good reason other than, I don't know, maybe it's part of my contrarian streak, which is I really sense that Apple wants me to, and so I, I assume behind there is some sort of nefarious process. Um, so anyway, but the, the, <laughs> the point I'm getting at is uh, it happens uh, pretty frequently, but as I was lying down for my nap today, I go, uh, set a timer for 30 minutes, and Siri comes back to me with this very sultry voice, and it goes, your timer set for 30 minutes. And it was like a completely different person. You know? I mean, I was right. There's that movie. Uh, it's not Terry Gilliam. It's, uh, oh, it doesn't matter. It's the movie Her, right? Uh, Her with Joaquin Phoenix, about where uh, Scarlett Johansson plays the, uh, or at least her voice plays the, the Siri-like system that Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with or whatever and has a relationship with. But when you spend enough time with your phone and when you set enough alarms and when you use your phone for all sorts of things, you kind of, you become very familiar with the voice of your phone. And I don't know how it changes, but it does. 
Uh, I don't know if it's because the battery's winding down, or I don't know if it's some sort of internal thing that changes the voice, but there are slight changes in the nuance of Siri's voice every once in a while. Sometimes she's very adroit and, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like, like robotic. And then sometimes it's like, I don't know, she's popped a quaalude, but Siri gets a little sultry. And uh, it's just bizarre. It's like there's a different person inhabiting my phone. Um, anyway, the first thing I wanted to... St- <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The first thing we were, we were going to start off with today is... Uh, I think it came up on the last episode, but uh, it's 2021 now. And it was... I don't know. I, I don't know if... We, I, don't, I can't sort of forget if... When I named the MVP for... When Matt Evans was our MVP, was that 2019 or was that 2020? I don't fucking know what it is. But the point is, is we need to name an MVP for... I don't know, either last year or this coming year. I'm not, I'm not sure how we're going to do it from now on, but the podcast needs a new MVP. Uh, Matt Evans is going to be a perennial MVP, meaning he you know, he doesn't get retired necessarily, but he, he gets ushered into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I actually owe that man a call, by the way. But uh, th- our new 2020, for th- our, our new podcast, oh Lord, let your boy get a drink of water here and reset. All right, here we go. <clears throat> The new podcast MVP is my brother. And uh, for some of you that might feel like nepotism, it, it is literally that. But uh, my brother has listened to every episode of the podcast. Uh, he always has interesting feedback about it. And uh, my brother, he's sort of been my creative filter for basically in every chapter of my creative life. He's been the, um, him and Matt Evans, frankly, but my brother has been someone that I've shown everything to. So... Uh, it's sort of a foregone conclusion for me, but uh, congratulations, brother. Uh, you're the new podcast MVP for the upcoming year. Um, the the thing that really nailed it, though, was it was sort of a strange sort of synchronicity thing, but you, you can't tell me that there's not a spirit in my life, because I was uh, working on Tuesday, I believe it was, and uh, I was in, the, you know, I mentioned this on the podcast last week. I started rereading *The Adolescent* by Dostoevsky, Russian author, obviously. And it, this was sort of strange because for the last, you know, few months, really, it's yeah, it's surprising. It's only been a few months, but I've been on a sort of reading kick lately. And for the last couple of months, I've read nothing but popular fiction: Stephen King, Michael Crichton, Elmore Leonard, all. You know, well, especially in the case of Stephen King and Elmore Leonard, all very, very good authors and and genuinely great writers, but popular fiction, nonetheless, not not high literature as far as most people are concerned. Uh, prior to that, I had been spending probably at least a year, maybe even two years, reading almost exclusively like Russian literature: Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, Gogol, just a bunch of stuff. And uh, I guess at the start of the last semester, I started reading The Adolescent. I got about 100 pages into it and wasn't too fond of it, honestly, and uh, put it down when the priorities uh, or school commitments sort of forced me to focus on other things. But got back to it. Uh, I was reading it, and I finished it. Not great. It's not a great book. It's sort of, um, in a way, and maybe I said this actually, but it sort of reminds me of, we were talking about Kurosawa, and I was saying Throne of Blood is a, is a movie that... Uh, you know, people talk about like it's very, very good that it's exceptional, but it's not—it's not great actually as a viewing experience. Now, I think the reason I've always been endeared to it is because it is an adaptation of Macbeth, uh, which is 
very important to me. In fact, I had a dream about Macbeth last night, coincidentally. I, be- I dreamt... Oh, wow, I'm just thinking this for the first time. I dreamt that I was playing Macbeth on stage, and I was playing Macbeth, and I've had a couple dreams like this, that I'm in an acting situation, and I haven't memorized my lines, and I'm just sort of like ad-libbing through the scene, and other actors are having to adapt to whatever I'm doing, which is sort of scary. And the dream was weird because I was playing opposite uh, Judy Dench, which uh, actually Ian McKellen played Macbeth opposite Judy Dench in a very famous uh, BBC production, which it's like impossible to find. I saw it on the internet years ago, and it's really, really incredible, and I haven't been able to find it since. But um, yeah, it was very bizarre. I, I can't think of anything specific, but it was just, uh, you know how dreams are. They're fucking silly. You try to explain explain them to other people. And it's like a whole lot of nothing. I think uh, Mitch Hedberg has a bit about that. Or someone, maybe Seinfeld. Someone has a bit where they talk about when you explain dreams to people, it makes no sense. You'll say things like, oh, I I was, uh, uh, I don't know, it was, it was such a nightmare. It was terrible. I was being chased by, uh, I was being chased by a marshmallow man and I ran across a pool of cotton candy. And oh, it was the scariest dream I've ever had. And people just don't know what to fucking make of it. So I guess I won't even try. Um... But I was saying, Throne of Blood is uh, not as great. It's sort of strange that it follows Seven Samurai. Because you watch Seven Samurai, and it really looks like a film that has a filmmaker is at the height of their powers. And it's not, you know, not everything we can do can be exceptional. But if you had that, if you, if you played me Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood back to back and said which one was made first, I would say Throne of Blood. Because, you know, the stakes are lower, certainly. But there's also just something in the in the quality of the filmmaking that is just not as high. Um, you know, it's known for the last scene, which is very famous. Um, but uh, it's just, it feels like the work of a younger filmmaker. It doesn't feel as fully uh, fully realized as Seven Samurai. Uh, the Adolescent by Dostoevsky feels the same way. It's Maybe it's a poor choice of narrator, who's this, like, 19-year-old. Uh, and maybe Dostoevsky's trying to write in their voice. But it's very discursive. It's, uh, it's 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 just it's not good. It's very kind of tedious. I was very eager for it to end, honestly. And uh, it's a little melodramatic. And um, yeah, and for its length, I think it's like almost five hundred pages. Really, not much happens, honestly. Um, so I can't recommend it too much. It's just it's funny that it fell between. Uh, I think he wrote the idiot right before this one. But anyway, it, this was on, you know, right? There's, he wrote this as a as a preface, uh, not narratively. I just mean he wrote it before Brothers Karamazov. So it's funny that this kind of, kind of a misstep in a book, you know, sort of preceded one of the greatest novels ever written. So I don't know what you want to take that for. But why the fuck am I telling you this? Um, Oh, yes, it just felt very strange that, as, you know, I've been reading all this popular fiction that I would just sort of pick up Dostoevsky again. So I had Russian authors on the brain. I was sort of think, reflecting on, uh, you know, the other authors I read. And then uh, I was working, and part of my job is being on the phone, and uh, I had this new Bluetooth headset, and I had it on in one of my ears, and uh, was just uh, walking around talking on the phone. And I walked by my book bookcase... And I look down, and I see uh, a couple books by George Saunders. Um, the first one that leapt out at me was this, his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. 
Um, if you've never read Lincoln and the Bardo, you should. It's exceptional. But he also has two really good st- short story collections. Uh, one is called Civil Warland in Bad Decline, and the other one's called Pastoralia. And uh, he has a couple other short story collections also, but those didn't just... They, they, I don't know. Uh, these two really mean a lot to me, and the others just haven't done as much for me. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but I picked up Lincoln and the Bardo. I was just kind of looking at it, and I was thinking, I really need to reread the, the short stories, these short story collections, Civil War Land and Bad Decline and Pastoralia. One hour later, as I'm sitting doing work, I get a knock on my door, and it's my neighbors uh, bringing me a package. Uh, they had a, an Amazon package for me that was delivered to them. And they bring it to me, and uh, I'm not expecting anything. So I don't know what this is. I don't know if my girlfriend has had something delivered to my address uh, for when she gets back into town or, or what it is. Uh, but I open it up, and it's a book by George Saunders, his newest book called A Swimmin', uh, well, I think it's called A Swimmin' a Pond in the Rain. Very silly title, but um, it's a book. It's a nonfiction book about Russian authors. And he uses about, I think it's like you know, five or six short, uh, short stories, some Chekhov, some Tolstoy. Um, and I don't know, he seems to break them down or something, but I thought, holy shit, what are the chances? Apropos of nothing, I pick up Dostoevsky and start reading him again. And uh, one hour ago, I was just walking past my bookshelf and looked at George Saunders and picked up one of his books and told myself, oh, I need to read some George Saunders. And then an hour later, this book comes. Oh, oh, I didn't even give you the clincher. So where did this fucking book come from? My brother, the new MVP of the podcast, sent it to me. Now, he had told me that he he was sending me this book, but this was six months ago, maybe longer. As soon as this book was announced to the public and pre-orders were available, my brother pre-ordered it and had it sent to me. I completely forgot about it. And uh, lo and behold, it showed up an hour it showed up at my door an hour after I was thinking about George Saunders. So uh, that's fucking crazy. So anyway, that's really just a long, long-winded way of explaining one of the reasons why my brother is the podcast MVP of, let's just call it 2021, right? Uh, he has to hold the title for the rest of the year. So the podcast MVP of 2021 is my brother. So congratulations. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's nepotism, but what can I say? We're all adults. We can handle it. I'm feeling pretty, uh, I'm feeling really sore. Um, I've been doing a shit ton of handiwork around the house, which is not something I normally do. Uh, My brother and his wife, you know, they bought their first home in the the city that they're living. And they've been renovating their kitchen. They've been, um, (laughs) I was going to say recoloring. (laughs) Shows you how handy I am. They've been repainting their, uh, their cupboards. Took them all down, sanded them, uh, painted them a different color, and uh, that's a lot of work. Um, they're making a house. They're making home. And, you know, I've been running the place I've lived in for a long-ass time now. And there's a lot of things around here that probably need some attention that I've just never given my attention to. One, my whole thing is, uh, you know, they have a the people who own this property, they have a handyman who works for them who does a lot of work around their house and has done some work around this property also. But in the 10 to 12 years that I've lived here, I have never once asked them for anything. I've never asked them to fix a single thing. Uh, They've never had a complaint about me. I'm basically, uh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm basically the ideal tenant. I pay my rent on time, and you never hear from me. And 
there's a couple things that I kind of have known needed attention, but what can I say? It wasn't a deal breaker for me. And uh, this week I just went through and fixed all of them. I had to replace the lock on the front door. So if you were thinking about breaking in here, you could fuck off now because this place is secure than it's ever been. And uh, replaced that, which was kind of fun. Uh, uh, the second thing I did was I replaced my toilet seat. Uh, one of the hinges just fucking cracked, which uh, I guess if you've been uh, sitting on it at least once a day for 12 years, it's bound to happen. And then also, um, this is sort of a microcosm for my life, but one thing, uh, two things actually that have been pestering me that I just haven't dealt with because I thought there were going to be bigger issues. Um, one was my toilet runs perpetually. It just has been making a noise incessantly. For a while, it was like the toilet tank was slow to fill when you would flush it. and uh, But even when it was filled, it would just keep making noise. Um, when I did this podcast, for example, I would have to make sure the bathroom door was closed so that that sound wouldn't trickle through. But this is something I have lived with for six months. You know, assuming it was going to be some big, uh, I don't know, big project or big undertaking to fix. And um, the second one was having a leaky faucet, um, both of which are actually very easy to fix if you just sort of look into it. So basically, I replaced the fill valve in my toilet, which anyone can do. Um, very easy uh, thing to do. And so that's fixed. And then the second one was a little more complicated. Actually, a leaky faucet, you know, and if you have a sort of two-handle faucet, you basically have a cartridge uh, in each valve, or whatever, for lack of a better word, that you can replace. Um, I was trying to replace the one in the in the, the cold water valve because uh, that's where the leak was coming from, and I just couldn't replicate the part. I, you know, I took it over to Home Depot, and there's just about a hundred different ones to choose from. And as far as I could tell, they just didn't have the part. The part itself is fifteen dollars, but a whole new faucet fixture is like twenty five. And so I got it in my mind. Well, I'm just going to change the whole faucet then. So that ended up becoming a bigger project than I thought and uh, had to make a second run back to Home Depot to get a basin wrench so that I could actually you know, get loosen the lugs that were under the faucet um, in the bathroom and, uh, and uh, have that fixed pretty much. There's still one other thing I have to do. Um, but uh, yeah, as I'm talking about it, <laughs> I'm kind of boring the shit out of myself. Uh, it was a big thing for me. I have felt really productive this week. I mean, I guess we were coming on the hills, the heels of uh, last weekend where I was saying I was feeling bad because I had sort of dropped the ball at work. I had this uh, training expectation and failed to show up, and it was uh, very embarrassing for me. And to make up for it, I basically, uh, I was supposed to be facilitating this training. And so since, since I did not show up, I had to set up three times during the week where the attendees could you know, come at their convenience and I would refacilitate the training at these three separate times. So, uh, you know, in terms of work, my schedule last week was just, you know, a few more responsibilities, things I had to show up for. And uh, that was good. It was nice to have that structure. You know, as my, my girlfriend's been out of town, I've had a lot of time to myself. And it means I've watched a lot of more movies and I've read through, you know, my books a little bit quicker. Um, but it's been a lot of time to myself and, you know, that's okay. But, um, you know, having to have a few more responsibilities at work and needing a bit more structure has been nice also. And so in that time, just deciding, you know, I'm also going to knock out these projects. Um, it's, it's felt good, you know, 
it's uh, helped show me that, uh, you know, structure is good for our psyche. You know, when I'm in school, I can't wait to be done with school. And then once you get a lot of time to yourself, though, you kind of realize, um, you kind of miss things, right? Uh, so yeah, I felt productive. I felt good. And however, talking about it is pretty fucking boring. <laughs> I don't know, but there's something about that uh, toilet situation. It's kind of a microcosm for my life in a lot of ways. I've, I've, I've just had so many instances where some small thing is happening, and I don't deal with it. And, uh, you know, it, I, none of these have, you know, they don't turn into a nightmare necessarily. But I just sit on them for so long, and the time I finally, by the time I finally get around to them, I've, I've developed some feelings about it. And when I am faced with a solution, I find it's no big deal at all. Um, I feel like it has recently... Uh, six months ago or so, I had this noise in my truck. There was something that sounded like it was coming out of the left wheel or something like that. Uh, the the left rear wheel. There was some kind of cranking and like it, it was just an awful noise. You could hear it inside the truck when you were driving, when you would uh, slow down, or when you would brake, when you would come to a stop at an intersection or something. You could hear it, and it just sounded awful. And I felt bad, kind of driving around with this noise, especially. Well, it sounds weird saying, but I, I almost got embarrassed sometimes when I would, like, pull up to an intersection. I would stop and hear this noise, and it was like you could almost feel people looking at me. There's a word for this, and I I don't know. It's just sort of like the other day, maybe even today, honestly, I was leaving the grocery store, and uh, someone pulled up to an intersection, a four-way stop, and their brakes were all fucked up, and you could hear them squealing from uh, probably a fucking, probably a half mile away or so. And, uh, of course it turns heads, but, and I guess it is kind of embarrassing because the first thing you think is, oh, Jesus, that person needs to work on their brakes. But obviously not, not everyone has the, uh, has the funds to deal with these things. So they just sort of sit with these problems. Thankfully for me, when I finally got it looked at, when I'm, you know, I, anytime I have something wrong with the truck, I just sort of have them look at it when it's time to do the oil change. If I can, I'll sit with it for 3000 miles, uh, which is probably not the best thing. But when they finally get around to looking at it, it's just not that big of a deal. Uh, they just had to tighten some uh, some bolts on the spare tire. Which is uh, kind of spooky. You've been driving around on this tire where the, the... I don't know why the nuts were loose, but they were... Maybe someone was in the middle of stealing the tire one day. And uh, I don't know, maybe someone saw them. <clears throat> But yes, running toilet, leaky faucet, things that you live with that you think they're going to be this huge undertaking, and the truth is that they're not. They're very easy fixes. It just takes a little bit of, uh, I was going to say gumption. I'm not even sure that's the word I'm looking for. It just takes a little bit of, you just have to believe you can do it. I think I default to this place where, because I, I, I don't know how to do something, I assume that it's... I don't think I consciously think it's beyond my capacity or that I, I can't do it necessarily, but it's just not for me, you know, that those are things that someone like myself can't do. You know, I've never been a handy person. I've never been an athletic person. And I think at some point your psyche gets, I think at some point, maybe around like 15 or 16, for a lot of us, maybe like 19 or so, our personalities kind of calcify for a lot of reasons. 
you know, and whoever we are at that time in our life shapes how we see ourselves in other chapters of our life also. And, um, I think for a long time, I just told myself that I, part of my narrative, the way I spoke to myself was that I was not a very capable person. I struggled with myself for a long time. And I just think that there are things that, uh, other people do very easily. And this is my perception of other people, obviously, but it seems to me that there are things that other people seem to be able to do very easily that are not impossible for me, but just take a little bit of extra work. And it's not just extra work in terms of, or I should say rather, I don't mean at all that it's extra work in terms of of time. Um, More often than not, when I get to things, I find I do uh, very well at them or even exceptionally well at them, but it takes a little more psychic energy, if that makes sense. It takes... It just has a larger emotional toll. Um, It sounds dramatic to say it, but it's almost like if I bring myself to do X task, I feel like I've done my job for the day. You know, it's sort of, it's a bigger deal for me than it might be for other people. Sorry, I'm struggling with my voice today. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, I don't know. It's been nice playing the handyman around the house recently. <clears throat> it's made me feel uh, capable in ways that I don't usually feel capable. I wish I was one of those guys who could like lift up the hood of a car and just kind of look into it and kind of see what's going on. I don't know shit about shit. And I know I'm not the only one. My whole generation is like that. Um you know, we talk about it in terms of gender a lot, but there's a lot of things that I think in general people used to know because they had to look closer to this technology that they just don't know anymore. It's things around the house. First of all, things are, I think generally things are built better. I mean, a lot of times, you know, people want to talk about how crappy things are, and I know that there's built-in obsolescence or um, whatever you want to call it in terms of things like, I don't know, electronic goods possibly. You know, these are things that, that we sort of burn through pretty quickly. But in general, things are built a lot better, even cars. Um, I think I'm just echoing something I heard somebody else say who knows a lot about cars, but, you know, back in the day, Toyota was a markedly better car than everything else that was on the road. I think it still is a better car, but that's also just me because I buy into their brand. Uh, I was raised in a family where everybody drove a Toyota. I still drive a Toyota. And honestly, I probably will for the rest of my life. Uh, it's just a, you know, I've just, you know, especially with my, my truck, I've had it for, it's a 2000. I've had it. I, I, I got it in 2000, 2001 or two, but I've had it for like 20 years and uh, never really had major problems with it um, or any problems that I did have that made perfect sense given the circumstances. It's just been a very reliable vehicle. Um, so, uh, but, but cars now are built really, really well. Someone was saying, you know, since the, um, uh, what do I want to call it? Since the recession of like 2007-ish, whatever that time period was, and uh, all the uh, auto industries got their, um, of course I can't think of the fucking word, you know, the government gave the uh, auto manufacturers just a shit ton of money so they could stay afloat. 
uh, they've really needed to compete, and now everything is pretty fucking good on the road. I think, uh, you know, the things that we have tend to work pretty good. Or also, maybe if we want to be pessimistic about it, the truth is, maybe things fail as much as they used to, but now we live in a time period where things are seen as so expendable that we actually don't even take the time to fix them. We just complete, we we just replace them. So there's certainly that part also, but I just feel like a lot of a lot of people in my generation just are not capable in ways that future generations had to be. I mean, how many of you listening know how to change a tire? And I don't mean just could figure it out. I mean, like if your tire, if you had a flat tire right now, could you change it? I mean, I not that this is the same thing, this, <laughs> but it, it's sort of uh, tangentially related. Which is, I remember when I was living in Arizona, I had a neighbor, and uh, he comes over and knocks on my door and tells me um, that he has cockroaches in his bathroom. Now, this is something, since I've moved to California, I've actually never seen a cockroach. Not once, not ever. In every place I've lived, I've never, ever seen a cockroach. I'm thrilled thrilled about it, by the way, but I've just never seen one. When I was living in Arizona, I saw them all the time. Not just in my place, but I saw them at my stepdad's house, too. Cockroaches were just more ubiquitous. I don't know what that is. Um, especially being in California, it feels damper. It seems like something that would cater to cockroaches, but I've just, I haven't seen one, thankfully. Hope I, and I hope I never fucking do because they gross, they gross me out. In fact, I remember one time when I was in Arizona, I woke up one morning, I put on my shorts and I just felt this scurrying up my side, up my flank, up my, just the side of my body toward my armpit. And you bet your ass it was a fucking big giant cockroach. And I wanted to dip my body in acid. I felt so disgusting. Um, it was the kind of shudder <laughs> that you just couldn't shake. It sat with me for like five minutes. It was it was disgusting. Um, but my neighbor come knocks on my door and he says, hey, I got cockroaches in my bathroom. And I was like, oh shit, man, that sucks. And he asks, he asks me if I could go over there and, and get them for him. And I was like, sure, which is insane. I don't know why. <laughs> One, I don't know where that question comes from. I don't know why someone's in their bathroom, especially my neighbor is in their bathroom. And they notice they have cockroaches and they come and knock on my door and ask if I could take care of them for them. But I did. I went over there. Excuse me. I, um, and what did I do? I guess I sprayed, huh? I just remember lifting up the toilet tank of his of the, the the lid of his toilet tank and there was like eight cockroaches in there it was fucking disgusting and i think it just sort of sprayed everybody but um yeah why did i bring that up oh i guess maybe capability people being less capable i don't know maybe he was just kind of uh scared about cockroaches i kind of want to make fun of the guy for that but in a way i can't blame him either and in fact maybe it, maybe it's a sign of you know maybe there's something uh um maybe a person really knows themselves when they have the I don't know if you want to call it balls. They have something. They, I, I, like for me, I would have been embarrassed. In a way, it's kind of like why I never asked for things to get fixed around my place. It's almost like I feel like if something is wrong with the toilet, it's, it's my fault. You know? Oh, I should have been taking better care of it. Um, I attach some kind of... Per- yeah, I, I, I just sort of make it my fault. And I'm sort of ashamed. I don't want to like let people know, like, oh, things are not right. Ooh, this is profound. I don't, it's like I don't want to let people know, like... I just assume it's my fault on some level. Like, if, if I had done something, if I had lived a better life, then uh, my uh, faucet wouldn't be leaking or my uh, toilet wouldn't be running. 
<clears throat> which explains why there's just an emotional, you know, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that there's this emotional work that I have to do to like get things done sometimes that other people just sort of walk through because, um, you know, for worse, certainly not for better, but for worse to my detriment, I attach some kind of extra, extra meaning to it. Some kind of personal meaning that's that, you know, the failure of this object is somehow indicative of like my own failures or my own failings, which, uh, is weird. Where does that come from? Huh? I should bring that up in therapy. Like, I feel like if I was fixed or, or, or a reformed person, I could just call my landlord and say, hey, X, Y, and Z is wrong with my place and be totally cool with them coming over, coming over and fixing it. But that feels weird for me. You know, I feel very accomplished at just sort of going through my place recently and fixing some of these small things. And I recognize they're not, you know, big things. It's not like I retiled the bathroom or, um, you know, um, I don't know, hang a bunch of new drywall or something. But um, I'm glad I did it myself. You know, they're small things, but you feel productive. But uh, still, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm talking through this like three three times, but uh, what can I say? It is what it is. <clears throat> Otherwise, I saw this um, I saw this interview. Uh, I don't know. We we talked about the Capitol, and I don't know really if there's anything new except now they are basically identifying people and tracking them down and pulling them off of airplanes and serving warrants. And um, I just have to think if you were there, you must be living in fear, thinking that someone's going to knock on your door any day now. But I saw this interview, I, I believe it's CBS News. I saw it on YouTube. Uh, when you go to YouTube, there's all your recommended videos. But at least one of, one of the... Uh, at least one of the horizontal news feeds is uh, videos in the news, right? Sort of news content. And uh, this one was this video about how they're identifying people in the news. It's about a 15-minute video, and as I was watching it, there's sort of two news correspondents who are in the studio, and then they have their guests for the segment. The person, basically some guy, uh, who was surprisingly handsome and young, which is strange. You were like, this guy almost looks like uh, like a male model or something like that. But they have this guy on, and apparently he's using some kind of technology to uh, identify people, some sort of resources. I don't know I don't know what he is, but I don't know if he's an investigative reporter or what. But he's using some kind of, um, he's using some kind of tools uh, to identify people who are at the Capitol and uh, is turning that information over to the police and, and helping to get people identified or whatever. Um, now, I don't watch the news, so I haven't seen a lot of this, but I, of course now because of COVID, everybody's doing everything remotely. So it looks like this guy is set up at his house and he has a pretty quality light set up. So I don't know if, I don't know if producers from the show kind of come over and give him the right gear, but he's clearly streaming from his uh, computer or something like that. But it's about a 15-minute conversation where they're going back and forth. And I swear to God, a half dozen times, someone, I, I can't really say for certain who, I think it's this guy, somebody farts like six times. And these are audible farts. And I'm seeing the stone faces of the people who are holding this interview and ostensibly the person speaking. And it's like, I can't believe, one, that nobody's breaking character, but nobody in the comments has commented about this at all. Like, I hear these things very distinctly. 
And it's like if normally if you have a hair out of place, there's a, there's a bunch of threads in the comments about your appearance or something. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing, even the smallest minutia becomes a topic of conversation. And I'm looking at the comments, and it has not been mentioned once. I've gone back and looked at this thing like three times just to make sure. And I swear to God, one of one of the ones I think is just sort of someone vocalizing, like clearing their throat. But I hear at least five clear, distinct farts, and nobody mentioned it. Maybe CBS is going through and deleting comments. <clears throat> I don't know, folks. I don't know why I'm even bringing this up. <laughs> maybe one thing we should do, I'm sort of imagining other podcasts where people have video podcasts, but maybe one thing we should do is sort of go back and I should find this and sort of pull out audio and, and break the uh, break the fart footage down for you. Because otherwise, otherwise we're just going to spend the next, what is it, 20 minutes talking about books and movies. <clears throat> I'm trying to avoid any meta commentary on the podcast as well. I don't know why, dude. It's hot as shit in here right now. As I went about my day today, though, I was thinking about, you know, future movies that will be made around this time period. I've seen a couple. uh, I haven't actually watched them, but I know a couple exist. People have made their pandemic movies. One is a... A horror movie called Host, which I think is like a Zoom horror movie. I think all the filming is done over Zoom or the, the narrative takes place over Zoom or something like that. The other one is HBO. Just came out with one with Anne Hathaway, some jewel heist <laughs> movie. Um, I got to feel like as an actor in Hollywood, every time you get a script, it's like a jewel heist. It's like, how many times can that movie be made? But but yeah, I guess it is what it is. But there's some pandemic jewel heist movie with Anne Hathaway on HBO now. But I just thought about this time period in the history books when how is this time period going to be depicted? People wearing face masks. I mean, you think about like in, in the Depression when people lined up for the, you know, bread lines or something. Like, is that going to be our legacy? And as I was just sort of thinking that going to the grocery store, it was just on my mind. And I had never heard this before. But when I was inside the grocery store, this voice comes over the PA and says... Ladies and gentlemen, when you're inside the grocery store, please make sure that your mask is covering both your nose and your mouth. If you need to answer your phone or remove your mask for any reason, please step outside. And I was just like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I hate the phrase new normal, but these are the things that are happening now that we've all completely acclimated to that would have been fucking insane a year ago. I mean, we've talked about this in terms of 9-11. The thing, like, you know, when you watch movies now, old movies from before the year 2001, um, you see people uh, just going up to uh, gates in airports, meeting people at the gate, which is something you used to be able to do. You can't do that anymore. You used to, you used to be able to smoke on flights. There used to be smoking sections in restaurants. You know, now people are going to be making movies and they're going to be, oh, that's set in the, you know, the 2020-ish time period in the United States. Look at everybody opening their masks, or, or wearing their masks, rather. Fucking bizarre, man. Or not. Maybe maybe they'll look at movies of people not wearing masks, and that'll be the weird thing. Ooh, that's even worse to think about. Maybe this is the new normal. They'll look back at movies of people just sort of gathering in mass for, like, the Super Bowl... And they go, wow, times were different then, man. People used to spend time with each other. Now we can't do shit. 
now we're all hermetically sealed in our own uh, uh, chambers. We're all living like uh, people on the movie Safe I was telling you about with Julianne Moore with her environmental sensitivities. People, God, it's so funny. Yeah, I was talking about this movie, um, Todd Haynes, I think is the director. It's called Safe with Julianne Moore. It's about a, a mother, uh, sorry, a wife in the San, San Bernardino Valley who uh, begins to develop these environmental sensitivities. And she ends up uh, sort of near the end of the film having to go to a special commune or compound for people with the same symptoms. And as she's being taken there uh, by a taxi after flying in, the taxi driver like crosses the street. They have like a cattle guard or a cattle rail. I don't know what to, I don't know what they call them, but you see them sometimes. Basically, you can drive over them, but they're slotted, if that's the right word, uh, so that cattle can't walk over them. And uh, this woman like runs out of her. Uh, this is like turn around. You're contaminating this whole area. That's the future we're going to be living in. Or what's the other movie where there's like a disease or they're lying to people that there's a disease or I can't remember what it is. I think it's 12 Monkeys, the movie with Bruce Willis. <clears throat> there's some kind of biological warfare or something or the earth is uninhabitable. So people are living underground. I think it's 12 Monkeys. Um, speaking of Bruce Willis. I watched Pulp Fiction. <clears throat> I didn't. I didn't watch as many movies this week. I haven't watched a few. Or I've only watched a few, rather. I, I saw the. I saw a movie called Eating Raul, which was not great. Uh, a lot of the movies I have queued up right now uh, on HBO are movies from the Criterion Collection, and uh, there was a comedy in there called Eating Raul. That uh, what can I say? I think my. I saw an interview with Michael Sarah where he recommend or he you know thought about that movie and thought it was really funny, and so I just sort of queued it up. And as I was looking through what to watch, I didn't really want to watch another French New Wave film, so I was looking for something a little bit lighter, and so I watched this movie, Eating Raoul. It's, uh, it's not very good. It's, I think it was made in the 80s? But it's a very kind of low-budget comedy. You can tell it's a passion project, and, and in some ways it's inspiring in that you can tell this was just like a labor of love for someone who made it. The, uh, the, the, the filmmaker, the writer, the director, he also stars in it, and he's not a good actor which actually is relevant to Quentin Tarantino, who, we're who we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I can't recommend it very highly, uh, unless you like very lowbrow kind of... I don't know. It's just not a very good comedy. But um, other than that, I watched a, a few Quentin Tarantino movies. <clears throat> um, I mentioned I read Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard a while ago, which is the book that the movie Jackie Brown is based on. And so I watched that a couple months ago or a month ago or whenever I did watch that movie. And uh, I'm trying to think if I watched another Tarantino in that time also. I don't think so. But uh, for what felt like no reason at all, I watched Pulp Fiction on HBO on their website. And I fucking love that movie. That is a perennial classic to me. And as I was watching it, there's just so many... It's just every moment is so good and it's endlessly quotable. And there's so many parts of it that I just, I laugh out loud every time I see it still. I've probably seen the movie like two dozen times. And I mean, I even remember one time, uh, uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, back when I was living in Arizona, I showed it to her for the first time. And I remember just sitting and watching it all the way through. And then afterwards, just because it's sort of told out of sequence, I remember just kind of thinking through it with her and just sort of charting the 
you know, if you had to put this in a sort of single forward narrative, like what would the story look like? It's uh, the characters are great. The writing's phenomenal. There's I don't I don't know what to say about it. I can't, I guess I can't un, I can't overstate the impact that Pulp Fiction has had on me. It's just one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life, and uh, it's great. If you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, you have to. Um, I'd be curious to see what people who see it now for the first time might think of it. But it's certainly when it came out, there's I just don't think that there's been a movie like it, uh, and. Uh, you know, for a lot of filmmakers, there's the sort of sophomore slump. Uh, Reservoir Dogs was his first movie in Pulp Fiction. It's just, it's exceptional. It's uh, Reservoir Dogs is great, but uh, Pulp Fiction is just everything it should be for for a filmmaker like Quentin Tarantino. And uh, to contrast that, I also after that the next night I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the second time. Um, the first time I saw it was in theaters. I saw it at the Grand Lakes Cinema in Oakland, California. Which is kind of cool. It's a you know I'd never been in that movie theater before. I think it's the only only time I've been in that movie theater, and I'm glad I saw it in theaters the first time I did because you're forced to sit and watch the whole thing. It's about two hours and forty five minutes, and I think if I had watched it at home the first time, I think I would have paused it a couple times. It may have even taken a couple days to get through it, honestly, because it's a very slow. It's overlong. Seeing a se- seeing it a second time, I realized there's so many scenes that don't need to be in there. Um, I'm not going to go into yeah, I'm not going to go into detail about what the movie's about necessarily. Except um, one of the most controversial scenes in the film is this fight scene that happens between Brad Pitt and uh, an actor who's playing Bruce Lee. And there was a lot of there was much ado about how this was a racist depiction of Bruce Lee on some level. Um, I find that in fact we may have even talked about this actually because i i feel like i i feel like i saw it in theaters within the the time period that this podcast has existed so we may have talked about this another time but if you've seen footage of bruce lee that's basically who he is so uh i don't know if he was as cocky or as boastful as the character they portray but otherwise that's a i mean that's that's what bruce bruce lee talked like so i'm not i'm not sure what people are upset about um uh but uh but yeah, that whole fight scene, when you look at that, you go, that doesn't, this doesn't have to be in the movie. Um, there's something about Quentin Tarantino's later movies where they, they kind of feel like a celebrity clusterfuck, meaning there's a lot of actors who are cast into roles that you don't know that they're necessarily fitted for, except because when you watch them, you just go, oh, that's so-and-so. Um, there's a few of those, and also Quentin Tarantino likes to cast his friends, um, Kurt Russell is in this. Zoe Bell, who was Uma Thurman's stunt double for Kill Bill, uh, who was also cast in uh, Death Proof, uh, who did a great job in Death Proof, by the way, is cast in this movie, and they're completely superfluous characters. They characters they do not need to be in it. The movie is very overbloated. The pacing is really weird. It's just very very slow. And in some ways, it's hard, you know, it's just not really about much. It's just kind of all vibe, you know? It doesn't have, it has a couple kind of interesting scenes, and but it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for a lot of people. And it's, you know, it's just, it's sort of the full flowering of, I think, a lot of things that have bothered, at least me as a fan of Quentin Tarantino for his last few movies. Um... And for me, it all sort of begins with Kill Bill Volume 2, 
which is I saw Kill Bill Volume 1 in theaters like four or five times, and uh, I think it's a great movie. I don't know if it holds up exceptionally well over long periods of time, meaning I can go back and watch Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction or even Reservoir Dogs, and those movies are fucking bulletproof to me. Um, I'd have to go back and watch Kill Bill, and maybe I will, but I remember Kill Bill Volume 2 was markedly inferior to the first part when it came out. It was just... It was just too much. You know, uh, Tarantino makes these sort of uh, genre homage. He does these genre experiments, and it was like... um, Part one was sort of uh, kung f- or not not a kung fu film necessarily, but it was it was a certain type of movie. And then uh, part two was the sort of spaghetti western, and it just didn't work as well. Um, then I get the order sort of screwed up here, but then like Django Unchained when that came out was sort of like not a great movie. I've gone back and seen it a few times, and it's okay, but it just there's something about it, it just doesn't work great. Inglorious Bastards is like also some good scenes, but it, especially Inglorious Bastards was like this movie's just kind of a celeb- celebrity clusterfuck. You know, there's just so many people in it, and it's like it just doesn't have it doesn't have the uh, it doesn't have the uh, the narrative. Oh, who the fuck, man? Who the fuck cares, man? It just doesn't have the. I don't know. It doesn't have the uh, the confidence as uh, Pulp Fiction. Um, speaking of confidence and not having it, that's how I feel today. This episode does not have the uh, the confidence of last week's episode. I really thought last week was kind of a return to form. This podcast has been hard for like uh, over a month now. And I was really happy that... Uh, I'm not saying last week was the best episode we've ever done, but it was just nice to get through an episode where it felt like the conversation was flowing pretty easily. This is difficult today, if I'm being honest. But um but yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just doesn't have the confidence as uh his other films. And Glorious Bastards doesn't have the confidence of uh his first films. And be curious to hear what Tarantino thinks about them. You know, does he look at Inglorious Bastards or Django or um Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and he thinks he's at the height of his powers? It's just sort of, I was going to say sad. I'm trying to relate to this as a creative person, but I think on a recent episode I was talking about my work as the plastic arts. You know, that's work that I do that I I hear about all the time and and, uh, people still email me about. And even though the music I do now has reached more people, I just don't think it's, mm, I don't think it's winning people's hearts and minds the way some of my earlier stuff has done. And uh, I get that when I look at other artists. I mean, I look at, uh, I mean, I watched Reservoir Dogs last night, and it's just, you know, maybe part of it is it was such a big part of my, uh, you know, my my teens. You know, I probably saw Reservoir Dogs for the first time when I was like, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, and watched it, you know, dozens of times when I was in my late teens, and uh you know Tarantino and those his those first three movies really, including True Romance, which he wrote but didn't direct. But you know Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, those were just movies that were on a loop for me and just meant so much to me. Um, and just the way his later stuff just didn't. You know Kill Bill for me was kind of the last, sort of the last film that I was 
the romance hadn't died, you know, like if my relationship, like if you have a relationship with filmmakers or a relationship with artists, their romance was still very much alive between me and Tarantino when Kill Bill Volume 1 came out. And it started to wane with Kill Bill Volume 2. And uh, it doesn't mean I haven't enjoyed his movies. Um, there's always great scenes. You know, he's really good at building tension. You know, and certainly when you watch a Tarantino movie, it's unlike anything else that other people do. It's unique. And so it's all good, but it's just missing something. And maybe maybe part of it is, may actually, maybe a relationship is a good example because, of course, artists change over time and they have to pursue their own interests. And maybe it's different than what you loved about them, but that's really all it is. It's just different. It's just also, um, it feels validating, but it's also worth noting when other people seem to agree you know, we've been talking a lot about Christopher Nolan on this podcast. And when I look back on Christopher Nolan, you know, really, I, I have to say the Batman movies aside. I mean, I know, excuse me, I know those are the movies that most people know Christopher Nolan for and would probably, especially The Dark Knight, would probably celebrate him for and say it was his best movie. But I completely disagree. I mean, I, I for me, there's something about the Batman movies that is utilitarian. I think those movies established him as a sort of big studio filmmaker, but I see them as sort of an, a means to an end, which is to, you know, he needed to make these tentpole films to sort of win the confidence of the studios to make his original movies. And yes, they're Christopher Nolan films and they, they do a lot of great things, but they're fucking Batman movies and they're not that good. And people who talk about them as if they're, you know, I don't know, the paragon of modern cinema, I think is fucking completely nutty. But regardless, Christopher Nolan has made great films, but it's his original films that are really good. Memento, The Prestige. Um, I remember I remember seeing Following years ago and thinking it was, it was something special. I mean, we used to have it on DVD when I was like 15 or so. Um, but yes, Memento. Saw that in theaters. I mean, that's another movie I think I may have been sitting in the front row. I, I certainly saw it at the same theater where I saw Sexy Beast at, we were talking about last episode. Um, but that was, uh, you know, when that movie came out in theaters and you saw it, it was just, you knew you were watching fucking something special. The Prestige, um, uh, Insomnia Sucks, <laughs> but we talked about that. Um, uh, Inception, obviously. Uh, Interstellar was a bit of a misstep. And then most recently with Tenet, it's like, you know, I don't know. And nobody's perfect, but it's just, it's hard. Like with Quentin Tarantino, you watch a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you go, you know, I'm not a filmmaker. It's very easy for me to say, right, from the comfort of my, of, of, of my you know, studio, right? It didn't have to be this way, you know? Uh, it's overlong. There's a lot of clusterfuck casting. Um you know, it's overbloated. And also, thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think he makes a major blunder by assuming that people know more about the Manson murders than they do. Uh, I think, obviously, Tarantino has his different areas of interest. You, you know, when you get into a project, you research a lot about it. But the fact that it's a story where the Manson murders are going to be in the backdrop sort of begins, the, you know, uh, uh, the Tate character is never really clearly identified until well after she's been on the scene for a while. You see her a couple times, and you're like, who the fuck is this? Then you realize it's Tate. Um, 
I don't think people are familiar enough with the Manson murders to really know what the fuck was going on. Like, you see, they live on Cielo Drive, I believe it is. You know, there's, like, this establishing shot with the street signs. That's not going to mean a lot to most people. And it's never really said explicitly that this is the Manson family. You hear Charlie, you hear Taxi, or sorry, you hear Taxi, you hear Squeaky. But I don't know that these are names that most people know very well. And so I remember seeing it in theaters with my friend. Uh, I saw it with my girl, sorry, I saw it with my girlfriend and her friend. And I turned to both of them afterwards and they, it was not clear to them that this was the Manson family. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that's a major, because, you know, you see the ending and it's like, you know, as a filmmaker, I think what Quentin Tarantino wanted to do is say, isn't it cool that this didn't happen? I mean, in the same way in Glorious Bastards is like an alternate history where you see Hitler get shot the fuck up and he goes, ha isn't that cool? I killed Hitler in my movie. I think the idea with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, oh, isn't it cool? I killed these members of the Manson family so that now Tate lives and her baby lives and the other people who are in the house live. Isn't it cool? It's like, I don't think most people know what the fuck is going on in that movie. Um... I will say, though, I think Brad Pitt kind of steals the film. Even though Leonardo DiCaprio, who probably... Oh, film for film, maybe... I'm sure Leonardo DiCaprio maybe has more better has better films than Brad Pitt, but Brad Pitt really steals that movie. And, I mean, when I look back on it, it's kind of funny. I kind of want to shit on Brad Pitt, but he's in a lot of my favorite films. Seven, Fight Club... Um, recently I watched the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. That's a very interesting movie. The first time I saw it, I didn't think it was great. And watching it now, it's, uh, it's beautifully shot. I think it's Deacons, I think is the cinematographer for that film. But, um, what a beautiful movie. Very strange, strangely structured. I think um, that movie was probably butchered in the editing or something. Sometimes you're watching a movie and there's weird fades between scenes, um, things are really abrupt and you realize, oh, I think this movie was fucked with in the editing somehow. Like it just doesn't feel, um, it just feels lopsided or something. There's something about the assassination of Jesse James that just feels like it's been fucked with. But Brad Pitt is fucking exceptional in that movie. Um, I did see Ad Astra recently with Brad Pitt and that was like Interstellar. It was a very cool, stylistically it was a very cool film about space. But I think space and science fiction is one of these things like musicals in that I think most filmmakers would like to do one eventually. And I think a lot in the terms of science fiction, I think a lot of that has to do with 2001 because that's such a celebrated film. You know, and it and it was sort of uh, I mean, that film is celebrated for what it is technically, but also because it sort of touches on these sort of broad, big themes, right? Thematically, it's a very mature film. And so sometimes I think people equate you know, they they will be at the height of their powers when they make their science fiction film that touches on like the nature of, of the meaning of life and, and those sorts of things. Um, and uh, so Ad Astra has some of that. It sort of is ambitious. You know, it's trying to say a lot of things, but it I don't know. It sort of uh, overreaches. In ter- it doesn't really quite, it, it's not quite what it does. It doesn't really earn what it thinks it is. I think Interstellar is a lot of that also. Yeah, it's space and black holes and time and all that sort of stuff and love and whatever it's trying to talk about, you know, the heart of the human condition, but um, it's just a little taken with itself in a way I don't think most audiences are. Ah, So what does all this amount to? Um, Quentin Tarantino is awesome despite some um, 
you know, poor movies, you know, near the, his most recent films are not so hot. And I don't know, folks, it's, uh, you know, I'm looking at the time. It's sort of time to end here. Um, anything else to say? I did watch uh, Fistful of Dollars the other day, which I had never seen before. I've been watching, uh, there was a period there a couple, a couple weeks ago. I was watching a lot of Westerns. I watched uh, a lot of the classics, like Rio Bravo and uh, The Searchers and uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Stagecoach. Um, no Country, I mean, I, you know, some modern, you know, sort of what I consider Westerns, like No Country for Old Men and, um, what else did I watch? Oh, True Grit, the remake of True Grit. Oh, and 310 to Yuma. And uh, it was funny watching Fistful of Dollars. I'd never seen it before. And uh, it's the first of the, I don't know, what do they call it? I think they call it the Dollars Trilogy or something like that. It's, you know, the Clint Eastwood films, the Spaghetti Westerns, Sergio Leone. And uh, it's, it's, it's okay. It's, a, you know, it's an okay movie, but it is Yojimbo. If you've seen Yojimbo by Kurosawa, it's the exact same thing. And it's not as good as Yojimbo, surprisingly. I mean, sometimes someone, like 310 to Yuma, to me, is a rem- it's a remake of an earlier movie, which itself is based on an Omar Leonard story, but the new one is, in, is, is incredible. True Grit is better than the original. The Coen Brothers remake of True Grit is better than the original. Um, Fistful of Dollars does not improve on Yojimbo. The original Kurosawa film is much better. So, um, oh, what the fuck? If you're ever stuck between the two, watch Yojimbo instead. Anyway, folks, let's go ahead and end it there. My throat is not doing well. My voice is, uh, it's really, uh, not, not very strong today. Um, I'm just going to end the podcast here and maybe make myself some dinner and watch True Detective. So, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, please, take a minute. Rate and review us. Give us five stars. Let me get a drink of water. Uh, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it, send them your favorite episode. Um, we'll be back here next week. And until then... Thank you for listening, and ciao for now.